Well, good morning, church family. If you have your Bibles, open them to Matthew, the fifth chapter. Matthew, the fifth chapter. We'll come back and read that passage in just a moment. There are many, many things in our culture that we never imagined would become prevalent that had become just that, prevalent. Murder is one of those, and our text is going to deal with that today. We've become all too familiar in our culture with murder. And maybe we see so many murders because of the rising tide of, of mental health issues that we see in our culture. Or maybe it's because so many movies and television shows and some of the most popular games that our children like to play on their devices focus on killing, which tends to desensitize and normalize and even glamorize it. Or maybe it's that so many of our news channels seem to sensationalize murder stories when they come across their desks. And certainly all of those factors and others contribute to the, to the crime, all types of crime we see in our nation, including the high number of murders. But as you can gather from the title of my message, I believe Scripture teaches that murder is a matter of the heart. We're going to read verses 21 through 26. Would you please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word? Jesus speaking you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment, liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother would be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother would be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put into prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we... Uh, Come, have come before us today another difficult text, one that uh, perhaps might step on our toes a little bit. We pray, Lord, that uh, your Holy Spirit will <clears throat> open up our hearts and open our minds that we may be able to hear it today, uh, be receptive to what your Word would say to us today, Father, in a way that will change us, make us more like your Son, Jesus Christ. Would you speak through me, I pray, by the power of your Holy Spirit to that effect. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> Experts tell us that the number of murders in the United States peaked at 22,941 in 2021. <clears throat> Excuse me. And it was about a 5% decline in, in 2022. As you might expect, cities like Chicago, Chicago had 630 murders in Philadelphia and L.A. and Houston. You know the cities, New York. Washington State, uh, in the last year for which statistics are available, had 301 homicides. And we're not exempt here in the Tri-Cities. In fact, with 19 homicides chronicled last year, Benton County set a, a tragic all-time record. 
One particular type of murder has dominated our day. It's mass shootings. They've become all too frequent. They're heartbreaking. We feel for the victims' families and place names like Columbine and Parkland and Uvalde and Sutherland Springs and Las Vegas and Sandy Hook and too, too many others are etched in our memories. And they represent unspeakable tragedies and evil that's just, just beyond our ability to comprehend. But we're far from the worst when it comes to the sheer numbers of murder. In Nigeria, there are over 640, excuse me, 64,000 murders last year. Brazil, over 57,000. India, 41,000. Mexico, about 37,000. All those pale in comparison to Mao Zedong, the founder and former leader of the People's Republic of China, who from 1958 to 1962 was responsible for the deaths of 45 million of his countrymen in what he ironically labeled the Great Leap Forward. And it's sad, all these numbers and others that we could have gone into, it's sad, but it's understandable <clears throat> that we've almost grown accustomed to the stories, to the horrific numbers of murders in our world. Or at the very least, these heinous impacts don't, these heinous crimes don't impact us as deeply as they once did and as they probably should. And when it comes to the causes, those who are there tell us that the killings are, are, are due to the issues that I mentioned before, some of those. But by and large, those who look to place the blame, say the number and availability of, of guns is the primary cause. We take care of that and we, and we deal with it all together. But now I want you to listen to me. Murders, or for that matter, any other crime such as thefts or sexual assaults or drug and human trafficking do not happen because of the lack of gun legislation or because of stress or because of the impact of the internet or movies or television or music upon our population. Murders happen because of the sinfulness of human hearts and minds. In Romans chapter 1, verse 29, the Bible tells us, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, now remember that phrase, <clears throat> God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetous, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, faithless, excuse me, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Beloved, those who murder do so because they have a debased mind, a mind which has been given over to evil, given over to their base desires because they have rejected God. So murder is a crime that, that comes out of the evil of the human heart, a heart that's turned away from his or her creator. We learn in the Bible also that God hates murder. In Proverbs 6, 16 and 17, the Bible says there are six things that Yahweh hates, seven that, that are an abomination to Him. And then it lists this as one of the seven, hands that shed innocent blood. So murder, we understand this, is an abomination to God. It's an act of unregenerate human flesh. It's a manifestation, murder is, of an evil heart. And then listen to this from Revelation 22, verse 14. <clears throat> Blessed are they that wash their robes, that they may have right to the tree of life, 
and enter in through the gates into the city, for outside are dogs and sorcerers and fornicators and murderers. Murderers will be left outside of the new Jerusalem, the city of God. Now, when you and I think about murder, what, what do we say it is? And we normally think it's, it's taking someone's life, right? We have our categories of negligent homicide and manslaughter and all that, but we normally say it's taking someone's life. Let me ask you this. When God gave the commandment that's recorded in Exodus, the sixth commandment, what did He have in mind? Was God addressing war? Was he talking about capital punishment? Was he talking about uh, abortions? There are nearly a million of those in the United States every single year. Was he talking about euthanasia? Was he talking about self-defense? And and is murder limited to actions alone? Or could could God have in mind the attitudes and the emotions that are behind the action? Could he be thinking about things like hate and resentment and anger and greed and pride and insensitive expressions? And and if those, listen, if those murderous attitudes are included in God's definition of murder, could we perhaps be facing a more serious problem than we imagine that we are? Or are you and I aware of the evil that lurks in our own hearts? I mean, ask yourself, could there be a murderer living in your house And could it be you? Critical questions all. Understanding the implications of God's command, His commandment against murder becomes extremely important if it encompasses attitudes as well as actions. For for if what God is calling murder includes what we think, our attitudes at various moments, circumstances then we're all in trouble the Ten Commandments they were handed down to Moses on Mount Sinai did include as its sixth the commandment prohibiting killing or murder and in the, in the Sermon on the Mount our Savior is going to expand and expound on the implications of that commandment and, and if we seriously if you and I seriously deliberate God's words here Jesus' words here we're forced to grapple with the reality of certain things in our lives with which we're not really fond of grappling. But if we're going to handle God's Word honestly, if we, if we hope to find relevance for our everyday lives, then grapple with them we must. You and I must ask ourselves, are we guilty of murder? How about you? Could you be a murderer? Let's take a few moments this morning and examine how Jesus applies the Sixth Commandment to our lives and to the way we live our lives. Matthew 5, verse 21 says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Here Jesus is talking about that Sixth Commandment that God gave on Mount Sinai, right? You may have the translation which reads, Thou shalt not kill. You already know this. The Hebrew word for kill is ratzah. It's literally rendered murder, to slay, to kill in a premeditated or, or, or even an accidental way. This word expands to that. Or as an act of revenge. And it's important to make that distinction because God clearly was not forbidding capital punishment or, or killing 
in war or as an act of self-defense. What this commandment is talking about is the taking of life with a malicious intent, even if it was accidental. What we have to understand is that foundational to the sixth commandment is that all life is sacred. God said in Matthew, excuse me, in Genesis 9, 6, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. Now we know that. So then to wipe out a person's life is not just a sin against the man or his family, it's a sin against God. And the penalty for that sin is death. Jesus said the ancients understood that whoever commits murder will be subject to judgment. Some translations say some shall be liable to court, but up to this point, those listening to the Sermon on the Mount here by Jesus would have been thinking about death, uh, excuse me, about murder in the literal sense, in the physical sense, but he's about to rock their world. He's going to rock our world as well when he says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother, that is, says raka, that means empty-headed, will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool, that's the word morose, from which we get the word moron, will be liable to the hell of fire. So Jesus is, is giving us a, a very important principle here. And once, we, once, once we've talked about, when we talked about before, and it's this, attitudes pave the way for actions. Because we're not AI robots, we're not emotional beings, because we are, excuse me, emotional beings, because we have the ability to be highly organized and analytical problem solvers, because we're human beings capable of making good choices as well as horrible ones, our attitudes and our intentions are foundational to our actions. And this is, this is exactly where we come face to face with the murderer in each of us. If we're honest, we've got to admit that we've all been guilty of violating what Jesus is talking about here. None of us get a pass here. The point is that He's just told the disciples, we looked at this last week, He's just told us that unless our righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, we will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is the, the first of six illustrations he's going to give we're going to look at it in the coming weeks to drive that point home unless your righteousness surpasses that of the pharisees and the teachers of the law you will not enter the kingdom of heaven so we see that what really matters to jesus is not merely the letter of the law but the spirit of the law as well and just as he always does jesus cuts right to the heart of the matter to the real issue that lies beneath the surface and we learn that attitudes can be as destructive as actions. Indeed, attitudes precede actions. Attitudes pave the way for the actions that follow. And that means our attitudes can make us as guilty before God as if we've committed the act itself. Jesus speaks of attitudes of anger and pride and ego and arrogance and more as he, as he fleshes out the true intent of His Father's commandments given of old. And we learn, we learn here that, the, that the, the person, the same judgment faces the person with these attitudes as does the person who commits the act itself. The title of this message could be Murder with an Attitude. Because it's possible to do just that. There's more than one, day, one way to kill a person. Attitudes can kill. 
They, they can devastate a person's dignity. They, they can slay a person's sense of self-worth. They can slaughter a person's spirit. It's interesting to note the stress Jesus places on those attitudes that manifest themselves through our words. For example, how, how about the, the arrogant, self-centered attitude which causes someone to call his brother Raka? Again, that means numbskull or good for nothing. So if we arrogantly call someone a numbskull, a blockhead, a good for nothing, a, a worthless idiot, we better check our attitude. Are we angry? Are we full of bitterness? Is there, is there an air of hatefulness about us? Are we putting someone else down to make us feel better about ourselves? Jesus denounces all of these attitudes and says that we can expect to receive judgment just as the one who murders will receive judgment. He goes on to say that the kind of murderous, hate-filled attitudes which calls, causes someone to call another person a fool, the word moros, which in Jesus' day was tantamount to calling them an infidel or an unbeliever, so that it was in reality a moral judgment that you would be making on a person if, they called him a fool, if you called him a fool. Jesus says this causes the one having those kinds of attitudes behind calling someone a fool to be in danger of the fire of hell. Now that's strong. That's strong. But these are the very words of our Lord Jesus, and we've got to hear them. We don't, we don't have a choice if we're going to take an honest look at this teaching this morning. So I want to ask you to look into your own heart on this matter, beloved, and understand this. Jesus connects murder to the thoughts or feelings of deep-seated hatred or malice we might have against another person. In other words, it's more than just a physical act that constitutes murder to God. Who tells us in His Word that, listen, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Spent much time thinking about that verse? Wow. When we harbor hatred in our hearts for another person, we've committed the sin of murder in God's eyes. And look what hangs in the balance. Eternal life. Love it, consider carefully your heart. What do you see there? Is there something dark hiding there? Do you often find yourselves having to deal yourself having to deal with attitudes that you shouldn't have or are there people with whom you're angry? I mean, right now, I mean, maybe right here in this room right now. Is there someone toward whom you've been harboring bitterness? Maybe they're right down the pew from you this morning. Is there someone you absolutely detest? Be careful. There could be a murderer in you. What we see in Jesus' words here is a, a clear cut correlation between physical violence and verbal aggression and the attitude behind that verbal violence. We see that we can shoot someone down with a 45 or we can wipe them out with our words. We know the tongue's a devastating weapon. In fact, it's often the weapon of choice among good Christian folk. James says the tongue also is a fire. 
a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. He says all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man, but no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come both praise and cursing. My brothers, my sisters, this should not be so. We can kill folks with bullets made of lead or with bullets made of words, and the source is the same. It all comes from a heart filled with hate. The simple fact is, murder is a matter of the heart. God has made us. He's made men and women in His image. When we depreciate someone by hurling hateful and and hurtful and humiliating words to them, it is God against whom we're sinning. And who who are we to decide anyway that people are not worthy or are not valuable? Who who do we think we are when we call someone a blockhead or a loser or or a fool or refer to them by any number of of ethnic slurs that I won't allow to cross my lips and neither will you, but you know what I'm talking about. Do, Do we have the right to disparage anyone in that way? Of course we don't. Of course we don't. And while this is probably another sermon for another day, let me just say that there's nothing that can do more damage to Richland Baptist Church or any other church than Christians wagging their tongues. Three things will happen when we do this, folks. First of all, the devil is given a great opportunity. A great opportunity to step in and get as much mileage out of the negative comment or the attitude birthing the comment as he possibly can, and you can bet he won't miss the opportunity. If we had any, I'm just convinced, if we had any idea how well and how often the unseen forces of evil against whom Paul says our battle is, and I know when preachers start talking about devils, y'all roll your eyes. I know that. I get it. But I'm convinced if we had any idea how often those forces strategize and mobilize trying to exploit our negative words and our hurtful actions, I'm convinced we'd be a lot more careful. Make no mistake about it, beloved. The enemy of our God is our enemy. We are not Switzerland here, okay? When we gather for genuine worship, we become a real threat to Satan. We're here to worship, to pray, and to teach, and to encourage one another to live and and proclaim the kingdom of God. And as such, proclaim the enemy's defeat. And we can be absolutely sure He cannot stand that and will do everything in His power to prevent it from happening, to sabotage it while it's happening. And He'll use our negative attitudes and our words to to, to and about one another to His fullest advantage. The real danger is us being unaware of the enemy's schemes. Now, we need to be careful not to see every difficulty in church as if it's, well, you know, that's just the way he is. You know, that's just the way she is. She don't mean anything by that. That's just the way church is. That's just the way it happens when you get people together. Brother, when a church divides over music style, that is not natural. When the, when the saints called to live in love spend 
their time criticizing and accusing one another, that is not natural. When the flock turns on its pastors, that is not natural. In fact, you might say the enemy has come to church. Second, when we speak inappropriately about one another, our church or the leadership of our church, the lost are handed just one more excuse, one more opportunity to rationalize turning away from Christ and the church and are pushed ever closer to an eternity in hell. Unjust criticism which leads to ungodly conflict, will always, always, always sap the energy from and take away from the focus of the church from the things that matter most. How can a Christian honestly bring the gospel of peace to an unbeliever when a battle is raging in his own church? Someone has said it's hard to save a drowning man if everyone is holding a life preserver, is arguing so loudly they cannot hear the cry. The third thing that happens when we talk disparagingly about someone is the Lord has handed a heartache. A former first lady was quoted as saying that the hardest thing about being a politician's wife is having to listen to the ugly things people say about her husband when she knew they weren't true. And we all feel that way about our spouses, I believe. Is it a stretch of our imagination to imagine that God would feel the same way about His bride? Listening to people callously and maliciously criticize His bride, whether the comments are about the pastor or a deacon or a brother or sister in the congregation or the church in general, must break His heart especially when it's coming from people who ought to know better. Attitudes pave the way for actions. And then Jesus goes on to say that attitudes impact our worship. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Now every Jew... And Jesus' day would have been familiar. We talked about this last week with the ceremony of offering sacrifices in order to atone for sin. They understood that, that that separated them from fellowship with God and the offering of the sacrifice repaired that relationship and that fellowship and brought them back into right relationship with God. But what Jesus wants us to understand here is that a right relationship with God means we will desire to sustain a right relationship with one another. If we're not passionate and purposeful about living in right relationship with our brothers and sisters, then we don't deserve the blessing of worshiping the God in whose image they and we are made. And if we've been given everything we need to live in harmony with genuine love for one another, everything we need, the key, though, is to fix our eyes on Jesus. Beloved, there was one murder that was most unjust of all. Our Savior yielded Himself in fulfillment of God's plan, His Father's plan, to those who would murder Him by hanging Him on a tree in order that you and I might be forgiven of all our sins. We need to fix our eyes 
on that man, that God-man, our Savior Jesus Christ. A.W. Tozier once wrote, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So, 100 or 200 or 250 or whatever, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious, conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. Hmm. Now when we look at this prohibition against murder from the perspective that we have this morning, are there any innocent among us? Just raise your hands if you're innocent. There are murderous attitudes in every one of us at times. And that ought to break our hearts. There should be no way we allow that to continue for any length of time. They say, okay, preacher, you're right. What do we do about it? When you and I confront the murderer within us, if we're going to be honest about that and say, okay, I hear you, preacher, there's only one course of action we can take, and that is we must execute the murderer in us. In other words, we must dedicate ourselves to deal a, a death blow to the attitudes which depreciate human dignity and value. You and I must deal a death blow to the attitudes and habit, patter, habit patterns which feed those attitudes, and it starts where it always starts. It starts with repentance. We simply need to repent. That's always the place that we ought to begin clearly. And that's because humility and repentance always deal a death blow to arrogance and pride. And we need to kill those kinds of attitudes because arrogance and pride are the attitudes that birth hatred. The question, of course, is are we willing? Are we willing to repent of those sinful attitudes? Because I found in my experience... I found it to be that some people like to hang on to those attitudes. Ever known anybody like that? I mean, they're angry, and they seem to enjoy being angry. Somebody's wronged them in their opinion, and, and, they're, and they're cultivating. It's like they're pursuing this long-term anger and contempt against that person. I've met people like that, and I bet you have too. Their anger is like a, like a pet sin to, sin to them. And they don't want to repent of that anger. It's, it's, it's as if the anger or the hatred energizes them, fuels them. And if they didn't have it, they really wouldn't know what to do. It gives them a reason to get up in the morning. So they hang on to it, pretending that it's, it's justifiable anger. Well, you don't know what they said to me. You don't know what they did to me. Jesus says, if we're not willing to repent of those sinful attitudes, we will find ourselves under the judgment of God. The only option, the way I see it, and I believe the way Scripture teaches it, is to repent. Then following genuine repentance, we must develop the attitudes which encourage and build one another up. 
Replace the negative attitudes with positive attitudes. We're told in Romans 12, 2, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Our minds must be renewed if we're going to keep away from murderous attitudes of heart. It's all, listen, it's always the things which we allow our minds to dwell upon that determine the attitudes of our hearts. That's why Paul says, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Right? If, if we dwell on the negative in people, their faults, their mistakes, their imperfections, their hang-ups, even their sins, we will inevitably have developed within us wrong attitudes of heart. But if we dwell on the positive, we'll begin to see people as God sees them. In 1 Samuel 16, 7, God says, The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And of course, it's impossible for you and I to see the heart of an individual. Yet still, we have to make a conscious effort to focus on the positive in people. And that's not to say we don't see the negatives, we don't fail to confront sin, or we don't hold people accountable for their detrimental action. It simply means that we don't dwell on the negatives. We make a conscious choice that we're going to dwell on the positive. This is what the Word says in Philippians 4.8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. These are the things which we ought to focus on, folks. When we look at another person, any other person, we ought to automatically, by default, be looking for things that are true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, or praiseworthy. There is not a single person in this room or in any of our spheres of influence who does not have some good points. We've got to strive to seek them out in one another. And when we find them, that's where we focus our attention. And if we do that, we'll be raining a death blow after death blow on the murderous attitudes of pride and arrogance and anger and hatred. And if we keep on, if we'll keep on, and we'll make this a matter of lifestyle, we will execute the murderer within us. It ought to be apparent to all of us that Jesus' teaching here from Jesus' teaching here is that attitude is everything. He goes beyond the letter of the law to the spirit of the law. He's telling us that it's not good enough to simply keep the letter of the law. He's teaching each of us that our obedience to the Father must start with the heart. God's got to have our whole heart, beloved. And then we must serve and love our brothers and sisters from that heart. But wouldn't it be wonderful if Jesus would have just thought to put that into a verse or two in Scripture, that we might have that somewhere in concise form? Well, how about this one? You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, this is the first and greatest commandment, Jesus says. And there's a second that's like it. 
you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And here, here's really the, the part of these verses that we miss. On these two commandments, all of the law and the prophets hang. Beloved, is your heart where it needs to be today? Let's pray. Father, what a blessing to be in your house today. To encourage one another and to love one another. To listen to the victories and the defeats, the high points and the low points of one another's lives. Father, we confess that there have been moments in our lives and maybe even right now when we're just kind of holding on to something that we don't need to hold on to. And it's darkening our world. It's obscuring our vision of you and of an other individual or individuals, Father, and we would not have that to be so. We want to be obedient to your word. We need your Holy Spirit to help us, Father, in this process of fixing our attitudes and our motivations, our words and our actions. We're thankful, Father, for clear teaching that helps us to do that, help us to apply that, Father. Your word, what your word has said, by the power of your Holy Spirit working in our lives, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.